I'm going to teach you a new word this morning. We're in an Advent series. Last week we talked about listening for God. This week we want to talk about watching for God and trying to look at what it looks like during those 400 years, and we've been in 2,000 years of listening and watching. So here's the word. I think it's on my PowerPoint. If not, there it is. You can see it right. Ah, obfuscates. What it means is to make unclear, to confuse, to bewilder. That's how some people describe my preaching. <laughs> I think this is a great word to describe the English language. Let me explain why. We talk about, and imagine an outsider coming in and learning our language and hear the word love. And people talk about loving football. And loving Italian food or loving Thai food or, or loving their dogs or their cats or, or loving vacation. And then they come along and say, I love you. You know, what does all that mean? Take the word watch. It's something we do. Hunters this past week, out in the woods, we're watching and hopefully to see. We, we talk about watching the news. Think about that for a moment because what we usually watch is our version of the news. Watch is something we wear. And of course, it's taken on new aspects because literally you can wear a computer as a watch on your wrist today. Watching can be both casual to in-depth. It can engage all our senses or just some. For instance, there are people every week that watch our English language in your bulletin. They're called proofreaders. Let me show you the result of some recent church bulletins. Not here because our proofreaders are great, okay? Here's what one person wrote. The low self-esteem support group will meet Friday. Please use the back door. How about this one? A new loudspeaker system has been installed in the church. It was given by one of our members in honor of his wife. Ouch. Now, we know what they were trying to communicate, but what did they really communicate? How about this one? Today we welcome our guest speaker, Pastor Donald Green, a caring individual who loves hurting people. We love to obfuscate things, don't we? And I'm giving you this warning up front because today I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And for some, you're going to leave this morning feeling obfuscated, okay? But think back to the 400 years where they were watching for the Messiah. And a lot of shifts politically, a lot of shifts economically, a lot of shifts culturally, but On the day Christ showed up, what he was born into was what we call dictatorship. It was one man who thought he was God. His name was Caesar. And Rome literally was a one world power. In his day, there was extreme disregard for life, cruelty. If you didn't align yourself with the status quo, you paid a price. Sometimes economically, sometimes physically, sometimes literally with your death. Economically, they just finished an era of prosperity. 
really they haven't seen before, but now they could not afford the they could not afford the government system because of the entitlement of the politicians of their day. They also had a large large slave labor system. If you couldn't afford to pay your bills, you were enslaved by the government. A lot of greed, mainly for power and wealth. And there's a plurality of religion. And we note later, the Christians were getting blamed for everything. When Rome fell and it burned, who got blamed? The Christians. But to illustrate the plurality of religion, you know, we have in our recorded scripture about the Magi coming from the east. It's where we get the word magic from. They were the mystics. And they would seek to control life through the stars, through all kinds of things. And I find it fascinating that out of all the people that came to see Jesus, all the people that saw the stars, it was this mystical group of people called the Magi. Now take the church. We've been watching for 2,000 years for the second return of this Messiah. And when he shows up this time, it's going to be very different than the coming as a baby. Amen? Well, that was kind of confusing and bewildering to a lot of people, there will be no confusion when he shows up this time. Now, last week we talked about 400 years of watching, of listening for God. When you think about listening for God and you think about watching for God, did you know that God watches for us? In Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, when he was talking to Jacob, and this was the promise to Israel, he said this, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. He was watching them those 400 years. He was with them those 400 years. Now, I'm curious how you take that. When you realize God's watching you, do you think he's waiting for you to screw up? Do you think he keeps a list to see who's been bad or good? Oh, no, that's Santa, isn't it? Um, But, you know, a lot of believers think that. God's just up there watching and waiting for them to mess up. Or do you see a loving father who watches over you as a loving father, a loving mother, watches over their children? There was 400 years of silence and They were watching for God. They were watching for the Messiah, and they developed all these preconceived images. And they came to believe he would be someone that when he came, they literally missed him. They were confused. Now, we've been watching for 2,000 years. And Scripture talks a lot about watching. Just listen to this series of Witnesses out of Scripture about things that we watch for. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. In Matthew 25, verse 13, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And while we are watching out for Christ, he tells us this in Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. Now, false prophets are people that deny Christ. Sometimes we obfuscate these people because they simply disagree with us. And people who disagree with you politically are not necessarily false prophets, okay? I'll just stop there. 
Matthew 24, verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. Mark 12, verse 38. Watch out for the teachers of the law. Luke 12, verse 15. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 17, 3. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Seven times in one day it says that you should forgive him. Point is, you don't count. The point is, you just keep on doing it. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. 2 John verse 1, verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose heart. See, watch is something. You, do you know how we describe someone who's really into sports or into a job or into a hobby? They eat, they drink it 24-7, and that's what they wear, that's what they talk about. This is a good definition of watch. It's something in Scripture that we are to make and integrate into our life. And think about even the watch that we wear. It tells the time, right? Do we understand time in the larger aspect of time? We call it transcendence. When God says a day is but a thousand years, a thousand years is but a day, do we understand that we are time-bound creatures and someday we're going to be eternity-bound creatures and time will be very, very different than it is? Can we read what is around us in light of who God is as we watch? Are we interpreting things through what he tells us and what he has told us? Now, his coming is going to bring a finality to life as we know it. And it will usher in something that was designed from the beginning of creation. A world that is without death, a world that is without sin. A world that is not bound by its finiteness that we experience today. You see, who we watch for shapes how we live. If you simply watch Hollywood and believe their self-perceived importance as to what they say, I find it amazing that somebody can star on TV or star in a movie and all of a sudden they are the wisest person that we should listen to. But that's who some people watch for. There's music icons. Again, I'm amazed that because someone is extremely talented in singing, playing an instrument, the weight of what they say rises to a higher level. Same with sports heroes. But who we watch for shapes how we live. Now, as the church, we're supposed to be watching Jesus. Amen? We sang this morning a song that reflects not only his first coming, but his second coming. Come thou long expected Jesus. Listen to the word sometime. Yes, it talks about his birth, but it also talks about and can be put in our time perspective about him coming again. So let me ask you this question. Where is Jesus today? Now, during those 400 years, they watched They had a lot of opinions about where God was, about what God was saying. And when he finally showed up, they missed him. And so I'm curious about who we are watching for, the images that we develop. I'm curious how we answer that question, where is Jesus today? Mark Twain gave this, I call it a fascinating quote, 
I don't know whether you believe it or not, but listen to what he says. If Christ were here now, there is one thing he would not be, a Christian. Now, of course, he's talking about the institutional church there. We know that he would be a Christian because he is Christ. But Mark Twain felt that we would, just like Israel was in their day, we would miss the Messiah. So we can ask ourselves the question this morning, is it possible that with all the wrappings and all the images and all the things that we do in the name of Christ, is it possible that we've done the same thing that Israel had done during 400 years? We form groups and subgroups to fit our image of Jesus, and this is who we wait for rather than Christ himself. So where is Jesus right now, and what does he look like? Are we like Thomas Jefferson who took his Bible and cut out everything that he sensed really wasn't Jesus? Are we like the Jesus Seminar in 1975? A group of scholars got together, and they effectively did the same thing, and they wrote off 18% of the New Testament because they said, this isn't Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there thinking, my Bible wasn't cut up. I didn't agree with the Jesus Seminar for those that were around in 1985. But what kind of images are you buying into? Do you buy in the seminatic vision version? You know, the Hollywood paints these pictures based on us, and, and we buy and sell. And have you noticed that often in our movies we have this American version of Jesus? Long, flowing hair, funky robes, clothes. He's mellow, kind of like he was smoking something that week. He's always calm. He never gets upset. There's this massive love feast. Everyone loved Jesus, right? And we somehow set aside that whatever he said and did made people want to kill him. And they did, or at least they tried to. So let me go back to the question about where is Jesus right now? Let me read a passage of Scripture you can follow with me. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 22. And listen to how that question is answered by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Look at this glorious exaltation. 
He's alive. He's on the throne. He's a king above all kings. He rules over the universe. He's the priest and intercedes. He's the triumphant warrior, conquered sin and death, all dominion, every title. Everything is under his feet. God says he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he reigns over the entire universe. He alone is God. He is the head of the church. That's the Jesus that's going to come again someday. And it will be clear. It will be concise. And there will be absolutely no confusion. Because Paul tells us in Philippians that every knee will bow and every name, every person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Now, we're going to enter a season now of reflecting upon Christ. Not his birth, but his death. I'm going to call those that are going to help us with communion to come forward at this time. And let me remind you in Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist started preaching about Christ's coming, he was calling out to watch for the Messiah. That's literally what he was preaching about. Now, according to history, you need to understand there was at least... 25 people when Jesus was coming that claimed to be Messiahs. So he was one among many options. Historically, we know this. But here's what John the Baptist said. He proclaimed the baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. So the message of the Messiah is twofold. When we think about communion, one is that you and I are not good enough to do it on our own. We need a Savior. And two, he is the God of creation, which means he restores that which is broken, that which is torn apart, that's what is in disrepair. And that's what communion reflects this morning. It's our need of a Savior, but it's also about the Savior, the Creator that comes and literally restores and makes all things new. Amen? Let's enter a time of remembering. The men are going to now take an offering, something we do every month. Go ahead, men. And this is an offering above our normal giving that we use to help those in need. Physical needs that many in our church as well as our community have. So as they do that, I want to go back to our our theme this morning of watching. I raised all those questions and those thoughts in the first half, because I've come to believe that most people have a deficient picture of Jesus. Those outside of the church as well as those inside of the church. I don't believe that we live like he's alive. I don't believe that we live like he has the power to make a difference. I don't think we live like he has the authority over this world. And our our images of Jesus is like someone we do not give our lives to. I want to read another passage of Scripture. It's Revelation 19. Just listen. Listen to this. You can follow along the screen. Because it describes this Jesus that we claim that we come to worship every single week. That we claim that we watch for. That we claim we believe. John writes these words. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has this name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Going back to the Ephesians passage. Remember Paul said that all rule, all power, all authority, every title that can be given, all things are under his feet. He is the head over everything. I mean, there's unparalleled claims. He has complete supremacy. He's exclusive. There is no other God. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. There is only one way. And while he's exclusive, he's also inclusive. And this is what got the New Testament martyrs and the martyrs today killed. So where is this Jesus and why does it matter? In a foggy world of despair, where there is no authority, there is no right and wrong, there is no power, why does it matter? Because Jesus is the only one that can deliver on this promise. And our hope is in him. John three thirty five. the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Colossians 1, verse 17 and 18, he is before all things, And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have the supremacy. He lived a life that we could not. He died a death that we should have. He rose again that we might have life, just not an ordinary life, but an abundant life, a life worth dying for, a life worth getting killed for. Here's Jesus' final words. From the end of Malachi to us. And then 2,000 years, his written words have been silent. But here's what he left. In Matthew 28, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, so the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Do you feel like that? <laughs> You look around, you see everything going on. We know the truth, but it's kind of like, does he really know what he's doing? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always. The very same thing he said to Jacob in Genesis to the very end of the age. God is nothing but consistent. He said, go out and meet them. Tell them about me. Watch for me. And as you watch, have a glimmer in your eye because you know, you know the end game. And you know when he comes on his horse that we can celebrate and we can worship with absolutely no fear, but only unimaginable victory. Amen? Let's stand together, and we're going to sing a closing song.
It's really a reprise of something we already sang. And let's celebrate this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords.